In the gospel lesson that you have just heard from St. Matthew, there are at least two tempting opportunities for preaching. The first one would be to preach on the deceitful nature of lawyers. And to those of you who are at the bar in this chapel, or to those undergraduates who aspire to the bar, now this is a text that I am sorely tempted to take for your sake and mine and that of the nation. But I shall restrain myself and not tell you what I think. But the gospel passage leaves us much room there, and it could be done. The second tempting option from this passage from the gospel is the very last verse, which strikes some of us indeed as anti-intellectual and anti-the spirit of the university, where it says, and they durst not ask him any more questions. Here one could go on at great length about the virtues of not asking too many questions, even in a questionable place like this. But I shall resist that temptation as well, and I shall confine my attention, as I hope you will, to what I think in fact is the burden of this passage from the Gospel, from which I have taken my text. It's the 37th verse of St. Matthew 22. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. Now it is Jesus himself who calls this the first and the greatest commandment. It is Jesus himself who lifts this commandment above all of the law, all of the instruction, all of the hints and suggestions for duty. It is Jesus who tells us that this is the duty that we owe toward God a duty that involves all of what we are and all of what we do. This is the legitimate answer to a trick question. The love of God, according to this great commandment of Jesus, the love of God is expressed with our hearts, it is expressed with our souls, it is expressed with our minds. It is not one of the above, you will note carefully. It is not two out of three. It is all of the faculties of our thinking, our feeling, and our being. All of this is required in love toward God. Now I mention this first and great commandment not only because the lectionary requires it and Dean Willimon would expect no less of me in his absence, but I mention this first and great commandment here as well because if this chapel 
and this university are anything at all like the chapel and the university that I serve in the Duke of the North, <laughs> then there are some of you who are here this morning who in fact look forward to chapel and to church as that one place, that one hour during the week when you are not obliged to think at all. Here in this marvelous space with the narcotic of music and the absolutely wonderfully tempting diversions of architecture, surrounded by your neighbors and friends, here you can all, as some of you already have, go on automatic pilot. You hang up all of the intensities of the work week all of the demands that press and push and prod, and you let whatever happens here in the Duke Chapel wash over you like a warm shower bath. I see it happening already as I move up this center aisle towards the western end. An undergraduate at Harvard with what I took to be a sincere even flattering intention, once told me at the door of Memorial Church that he liked my sermons because it was the most restful 20 minutes he had all week. A good sermon, I was once told, was one from which either you left enlightened or awoke refreshed. But the great commandment, while it does not command us to listen to sermons, does say that one of the things with which love toward God is expressed is with the mind. So would you do God and me the kindness by re-engaging your minds? I require your attention even in the choir. I know you lot. Listen up. We are expected to express our love toward God in the first case with our mind. There is intellect, reason involved in the worship and the love of God. And we are expected, we are commanded to give our minds over to this enterprise in obedience to what God requires of us. Now this is not to say, and I hasten to say it, that either God or the worship of God or even the love of God are in themselves reasonable propositions. If your minds are alert now, as they must be, you will note that these are not one and the same thing. Worship the love of God, these are in fact quite unreasonable as reason goes, especially if reason is defined as that which you can see or prove or do. Try to argue if you're an undergraduate with your roommate or if you're not with your spouse or your friend about the existence of God, and you will discover very quickly how impossible the most reasonable of people 
and the most reasonable of arguments becomes in that set of circumstances. And if you want another example of the unreasonableness of this enterprise in which you are to give over your mind, look at this very chapel itself. This is as unreasonable a space and place as designed by the hand of man. This is an incredibly inefficient place. Look all around it, all of this glass, all of this stone, not one but two organs. For what? What an unreasonable enterprise, what an inefficient, unreasonable place this is compared to a laboratory or a library. This could make wonderful condominia for faculty, for example. It would make a very reasonable use if converted into something sensible and practical. But here it stands, a monument to the unreasonable within which one is meant to give over, among other things, one's mind to God. Here, this marvelously unreasonable space, St. Nicotine's, I always call it, whenever I come to Duke. <laughs> At Harvard, Memorial Church stands in the most prominent part of the college yard. And like your chapel here, it can't be missed. A dean once said to me, Lovely building, the chapel, but if we were starting again, I don't think we'd put it here. And I suspect that the makers of your modern university, were they to start all over again, might have second thoughts about placing the chapel right here. It is such an unreasonable expression of a university's ambition. But unreasonable as this all may seem, the great commandment does not reject the mind. In fact, it commandeers the mind, it drafts the mind for the worship and the love of God. God wants your mind, small and inadequate and efficient as it is. God wants it anyway, to think is to attempt to worship and love God. To think is to attempt to comprehend God. Think about that. Now, warm-hearted Christians, and I'm not unaware that John Wesley, your great patron, once described himself as strangely warmed, I always thought that a marvelous phrase as a Baptist. It sounds not quite fully done, strangely warmed. Now, warm-hearted Christians tend to think of thought and thinking and thinkers as cold-hearted and rational. Warm-hearted Christians, especially in the environment of a great secular university such as Duke, will tend or be tempted to see the faith as an island in the storm. That one place, this place, where faith and 
fuzz become one. But God requires not simply our hearts, but our minds as well. St. Augustine tells us of the consolations God has given us in this world, and chief among these are the abilities to think and to discern, to discover, to imagine, to come to terms with truth, to discover truth from error, to calculate, to cogitate, to calibrate. These are not secular pursuits. These are not activities reserved alone for the library and the laboratory and the people in white coats. These are indeed the gifts of God for the people of God. And if you fail to think, you are abusing one of the gifts of God. You are engaged in a wasteful, blasphemy. neither are you and neither is the church so no Christian who loves God should ever be afraid of an idea no matter how obnoxious no matter how difficult no matter how perverse for the mind is the gift God has given us to discern among good, bad, and indifferent ideas. Ideas are Christian property, and not to use them is to be very poor stewards indeed. No Christian who loves God need ever think that his mind is an alien force, something that has to be turned off when you become religious. If that is the case, you are not truly or thoroughly religious. No Christian who loves God need ever put her intellectual faculties on hold. Indeed, as my predecessor, George Arthur Buttrick, used to say of the Memorial Church, the doors of the church should never be so low that someone must leave his head outside when he enters. Thank God that the doors of Duke Chapel appear to be high and everlasting so that here men and women may worship God with their minds fully intact, fully engaged, fully pushed, challenged, and stimulated. To think fully and comprehensively, to think micro and macro, is ultimately to think of God. As the hymnist says, my ample creed, it is the thought of God. But thank God, the great commandment which Jesus invokes here commandeers more than merely 
the mind. For the organs of feeling and passion are also called for. God commandeers the heart and the soul as well as the mind. God does not want thoughtless Christians who just feel all warm and fuzzy, nor does God want thoughtful Christians who have no spirit, who have no passions or feelings. God requires the whole thing, and so we are grateful for this great commandment which requires thinking and feeling the faith. Religion may be learnt, it may be taught, in some places it may even be practiced, but both ultimately and immediately the Christian faith is both caught and felt. And such a feeling, if you will, is invariably and inevitably the result of a relationship. You have first opened your minds, now open your hearts to receive the good news of Christ. Feeling, if you will, is inevitably the result of a relationship. Now I know this word relationship is a very dangerous, slippery word. It has become a euphemism, a substitute for more basic Anglo-Saxon meaning. No one any longer has friends or lovers or boyfriends or girlfriends anymore. Everyone is in or out or moving toward or coming from out of a relationship. And most of these are meant to be meaningful, that is, full of deep and inexplicable meaning. And these all, both good and bad, make demands upon that collection of invisible realities, invisible realities that we call feelings. So I want to rehabilitate both the notion of relationship and feeling for the use of the Christian faith and the great commandment this text allows me to do so. Feelings are the inevitable result of a relationship. Think about it. Feelings are always the result of a relationship, made, sustained, or broken. We connect or we fail to connect, and in that relationship, broken or unbroken, feelings, the heart and the soul, come into play. Faith is meant to be felt, not simply taught or merely understood. It is meant to be felt. You are meant to be more than strangely warmed. Faith is ultimately a response to what God has done for us. And we are to respond to the great and generous act of creation 
with our minds, but indeed with more, with our hearts and our souls. All of our being, the whole thing that makes us human, is that with which we respond to God who made us human. But we all know how we feel when the question is put, how are you feeling today? When we put that question, we know that it does not require a full or a truthful answer. And how horrible it is when somebody actually, in response to that question, tells you how they are feeling today. Who can bear it? It is one of the liabilities of truth. Few of us can. God bless rhetorical questions. But the question, if looked at carefully, is not merely a medical or a physical or even a psychological question. It is not even merely polite. It has to do with you and all of the relationships that define who and whose you are. Because we can only feel in relationships to others and to other things. To feel the faith is not simply a private inner glow. It is to respond to God in all of the relationships in which God has set us and in which God is to be found. And we know with our minds those feelings of our hearts and our souls. And we are at one in some strange and wondrous way when all of these qualities of mind, heart, and soul are combined. That is when we are fully understood even as we fully understand. I point only to this building as a perfect example of that union of heart and mind and soul. This unreasonable building is the result of the most careful of mathematical and architectural calculations. It is, in some sense, reason in stone. Mere faith that a place like this would turn out okay, mere faith, mere hope that something would allow this building to go up, that one stone would stand upon another, simply would not do. But the result of this reasonable mathematical enterprise is, we must all testify, more than reasonable. The whole is greater than the sum of its part. It is the expression, this chapel of yours, if you will, of a feeling. It is the expression of a relationship, indeed, between the seen and the unseen between the transient and the eternal. It is a statement of the relationship, if you will, between earth 
and heaven itself. Oh, certainly, Mr. Duke may have built this church to atone for his many sins or to impress his many neighbors. All of that may be true. But who cares? For God has a greater use for it. And when you come here, if you have any sense at all, you are driven to your knees, your spiritual knees. You are lost in wonder, love, and praise. For you see, in the end, as in the beginning, God does not want just your mind, but God does want your mind. God does not want just your hearts and your souls, but God does want your heart and your soul as well. God, who gave it all, wants it all, and will accept nothing less. Your rational, thoughtful self, so well expressed in the classroom, your energetic, passionate, physical self, so well expressed upon the fields of endeavor, and your spiritual, heartfelt self, which finds itself expressed here in this place. God wants all of this. God requires all of this. One of the great curses in some respects of being an undergraduate in a great university like this is the easy and readily understood temptation to live carefully compartmentalized life. In the classroom, I think, more or less. In the dormitory, I have fun as much as I can. On the fields, I play as well as I can. And in church, I am religious, or at least not consciously wicked. All of these self-contained little departments and compartments that have nothing each to do with the other, the segregation of mind and heart and soul and the physical and the spiritual. The older you get, I hope the clearer it becomes that such little tiny boxes simply don't exist and that the one place where all of these departments and compartments are melded and transformed and transcended, the one place where that happens here and anywhere else is in this place before the altar of God. The older of you may know this, and if you don't, it's time you learned it. The undergraduates, here is a time and place for you to think about the faith and to feel it as well. These are not mutually exclusive. They are meant to give you, like this building, something larger than the sum of its parts, and it is called life. So the Christian faith is not simply mind over matter or heart 
overhead. It is all that a man or a woman can be or aspire to be. To think and to do that is required in response to what God has done and is doing for you. The lawyers who put that question to Jesus, like most lawyers, alas, were not interested in advancing the frontiers of truth or knowledge or even information. They were interested simply in tripping up Jesus. But they and you and I have got an answer to a question, an answer that far exceeds the question and the questioners. God has been generous to us in every way, every day, in every department. God has been generous to us with minds that think and hearts that feel and bodies that work more or less. God has been generous. Don't be stingy in your return. This is not just an offertory sentence. Don't be stingy in your return with what God has given you. If your mind works, you owe it to God. If your body works, you owe it to God. If your heart can still function and beat and feel, you owe it to God. The faith is meant to be thought and felt. For in no other way can it be enjoyed or shared. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Amen.